Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read verses 21 through 30. Matthew 5, 21 through 30. It's on page 858 of the Pew Bible. If you don't have your own Bible, there's a black hardcover Pew Bible, and you'll find, you'll, you'll find the, um, the five is the large number, that's the chapter number, and the small numbers are the verse numbers. So Matthew chapter 5, and then we're going to begin in verse 21, and we're only going to read to verse 30 this morning. We'll only read to verse 30 this morning. Matthew 5, 21 to 30. Hear then the word of God. Actually, sorry, I'm going to begin in verse 19, just to get a running start here. Verse 19, therefore, Jesus says, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder. And whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. So if you're offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're, you're on the way with him to the court, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better for you that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we praise you for your word. It is an act of worship to read your word publicly. And so, Father, we continue to worship you and ascribe glory to your name, holiness, joy, beauty, majesty, goodness, and honor to you and you alone. And we pray now, Father, that as we look at your word, that you would give us understanding. We pray that you would break down walls of personal defensiveness that would cause us to excuse ourselves from the conviction your Holy Spirit seeks to bring into our hearts from this passage. We pray that we would be so quick to see the log in our own eye rather than seeing the speck in others' eyes as we meditate on this passage. So help us, Lord, to come to the light that our sin and self-centeredness might be exposed, that we might find healing and grace in Christ and growth. 
that we might shine as the light of the world and work as the salt of the earth, that we might be effective in being peacemakers in this world you have sent us to be peacemakers in. So grow us, Father, in righteousness. That is what we long for. That's what we need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The problem with religion today is... How would you finish that sentence? The problem with religion today is religion causes war. The problem with religion today is that religion causes ignorance. Religion causes superstition and a lack of learning and knowledge. Religion manipulates people and forces them to do either dumb things, like spend their money to pay for their pastor's private jet, or other, even worse than dumb things, even criminal things. Religion often manipulates people. The problem with religion today is religion. Jesus has a take on religion, and here's one of Jesus' takes on religion. Religion does not get you to heaven or make God accept you. Religion does not get you to heaven and does not make God accept you. That might be surprising for you to hear in a church gathering like this one where we are focusing on growing in righteousness this Sunday as we have been, as we're thinking through the Sermon on the Mount together. But it's true. Religion does not make you, make God accept you, and it does not get you to heaven. I mean, look at Matthew 5, verse 20. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, and they were religious, unless your righteousness surpasses their religion, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Never. You cannot be accepted by God on your religious efforts and your religious practices. The cure for religious fakery and hypocrisy and even good religion that you try to work your way to God, the cure for that is true righteousness. True surpassing righteousness. Righteousness that's not merely external, that people can see on a Sunday when you greet each other, but righteousness that is internal. Righteousness not primarily before men and women, but righteousness before God who sees all and searches our hearts. Surpassing righteousness is required to get into heaven, and we can't reach it. We can't make it. Matthew 5.3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the, kingdom of heaven, is the kingdom of heaven. And we are poor in spirit. We are bankrupt in righteousness. We are completely destitute. Not only are we bankrupt in righteousness and in spirit, we hunger and thirst for righteousness because we lack it. We don't have it. So how can we enter into the kingdom of heaven if we lack this righteousness on our own strength? Well, firstly, and this is not the point of Matthew 5 through 7, but it is in the Bible, our righteousness is first of all according, at least according to the Old Testament, with Abraham in Genesis 15, 3, he believed God's promise of a seed and it was credited to him as righteousness. In our Sunday school class this morning, we were going over the Reformation where Martin Luther discovered, rediscovered in Romans 1.17 that it's not our righteousness that makes us accepted before God. It's the righteousness of Christ credited to us. He gets the credit of our sin, which is not credit at all. It's a debit. 
and we get his credit of his righteousness, and that, on the basis of faith alone, you can be accepted before God, not by your goodness, not by your religion. That is the gospel. You're justified, declared righteous, and credited as righteous by faith alone in Christ alone. And that's why God would accept you, because of Jesus, not because of you. But that's not the message here in Matthew. I mean, that's just part of how you get accepted before God. In Matthew 5, 17 and 18, we learn that Jesus is not only the one who fulfills the Old Testament for us. He doesn't only fulfill righteousness for us. We learned last week, he, he fulfills righteousness in us. You remember that? He fulfills righteousness not only for us, he fulfills righteousness in us. In other words, he works it into our lives. He transforms our lives. He takes out our heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh. He puts his Holy Spirit within us. He gives us a new spirit, new life, Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, and he causes us to walk in his ways. He causes us to have a surpassing righteousness. He fulfills it for us positionally, and then he fulfills it in us practically. So we learn again in Matthew 5, 20, that only those who have this righteousness, the Jesus-produced righteousness, where he fulfills it in you, These are the ones who enter the kingdom of heaven. And you know what? We want to know, am I getting in or not? Right? That's the bottom line. Am I getting in or not? We buried our oldest member last Friday, our sweet sister, Doris Hilty, who's now in the presence of God, absent from the body and present with the Lord. And we want to know, will we be there too? Right? Will we truly be his people? Are we truly his people? We know that we're not righteous. We know we're aware of some of our sins, not all. And if you're a Christian and you really try to follow Jesus according to the Bible, don't you sometimes feel hypocritical? Don't you feel and hate your shortcomings? When you read this and you look at your life and you read this and you look at your life, you see shortcomings. So how can we know we're truly his people? How can we confidently face the final judgment? Well, Jesus gives us six antitheses in the rest of this chapter. We're only going to look at the first two today in verses 21 through 30. Here's the main idea for the next few weeks, maybe the next two weeks, maybe the next three Sundays. Hunger and thirst for surpassing righteousness so that you will be filled and and confidently face the final judgment. Okay, This is the overview for 21 through 48. Hunger and thirst for righteousness, for surpassing righteousness, so that you would be filled with that righteousness from Christ and you can confidently face the final judgment because you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay? That's, that, you need a hunger and thirst for righteousness because Matthew 5, 6, hung, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be what? They'll be filled. Do you want to be filled? Then hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so Jesus is going to lay out six antitheses here of righteousness that we need to hunger and thirst for. So we'll look at the first two today. Just to give you the next few weeks, we need to hunger and thirst for a righteous love for holiness. That's this week. Next week, and maybe for the next, if we could do both next week. If not, we'll just do one. Hunger and thirst for a righteous honesty. That would be next week. And then the week after that, hunger and thirst for a righteous love for your opposition. So hunger and thirst for righteous love for holiness. That's today. Hunger and thirst for a righteous love for honesty. That's next week. And then maybe the following week, hunger and thirst for a righteous love for your opposition, those who oppose your righteousness. All right, so let's look at this week. Hunger and thirst for right, a righteous love for holiness. We see this holiness in two ways, and these are the two points of our sermon. Hunger and thirst 
Firstly, for a righteous anger with sensitivity. I tried to make it as short as I could, but sorry for the many words here. Point number one, hunger and thirst for a righteous anger with sensitivity. What do I mean by that? Look at verse 21 with me. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not what? What's the command? Do not what? Do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. Doesn't that make sense? Shouldn't murderers be subject to judgment? Shouldn't murderers be held accountable? Everyone agrees with that, right? Murder is outlawed in the Old Testament. Not killing per se. God does command killing at times in the Old Testament. And if you believe in capital punishment, which is another discussion for another day, but if you believe that that is biblical, then if you were working the... If that was your job in our government to work the capital punishment, would you be sinning? Not necessarily. That's not murder. Murder is intentional, vindictive, personal, and evil. It's malicious. Do not murder. If you do murder, you're subject to judgment. Everyone gets that. But Jesus doesn't stop there in verse 21. He says, that's what you've heard, and that's true, but I tell you, surpassing righteousness goes, goes deeper than not murdering. Verse 22, but I tell you, everyone who is what? Angry with his brother or sister will be, will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. So it's not only murder that's outlawed, but anger is outlawed. Now, is all anger outlawed? Is all anger sinful? Is there such a thing as righteous anger? Yes, I mean, Ephesians 4.25, quoting the Old Testament, actually commands you to be angry. Be angry and do not sin. So there is such a thing as righteous anger that is not sinful. I mean, didn't Jesus put a whip together and overturn tables and throw money changers out on two occasions in the temple? He did, didn't he? I, I was asking Ross this morning when we were in our Sunday school class, do you think Jesus could have done that calmly? Just like staring at you as he's overturning the table. You know, but not, not, not angry, just not riled up, just, you know. Um, I, I guess he, it's possible. It's hard to see Jesus not angry here. And, and, and beyond that, I mean, Matthew 23, 17, Jesus says here, don't call people fool, right? He says, whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. Jesus says that in Matthew 5. But if you read Matthew 23, verse 17, Jesus says to the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You pay a tenth. I'm sorry, I'm in verse 23. I'm going to go to verse 17. Blind fools! For which is greater, the gold or the temple or the sanctified gold? Or the thing that sanctified gold? Jesus calls Pharisees blind what? Fools. And Jesus says here, whoever says, you fool will be subject to hellfire. So in other words, there is a place for righteous anger somewhere in the Christian life. There is even a place for calling someone a blind fool. Right? But there's also such a thing as sinful anger. You know, you don't get too many of Paul's sins in the Bible, but Paul did sin in Acts 23, verses 3 through 5. He had sinful anger. Paul is in chains. The apostle Paul's in chains. And he is there before the high priest. And then um, the high priest looks at Paul and gives the order to the guard to strike him. So the guard strikes Paul. And Paul 
Then Paul said, his, so Paul, imagine Paul getting struck and Paul lashes back with this answer. This is Acts 23, verses 3 through 5. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. You are sitting there judging me according to the law and in violation of the law, you're ordering me to be struck. And those standing nearby said to Paul, do you dare revile God's high priest? And then Paul responds, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, replied Paul. For it is written, you must not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Wow. That would apply to politics today and in every generation, right? The speaking evil of the ruler of your people. But um, that's not the point here. The point here is that Paul got angry sinfully. He disobeyed a command of Scripture, right? So there is a place for righteous anger like Jesus, but you can get angry and even say, I was unjustly struck, and Paul was unjustly struck. But for Paul to lash out and, and speak evil of the ruler of God's people, for, for Paul, that was sinful. He broke a command of Scripture. Even when he was right, and, and it was wrong for him to get um, struck. So God, Jesus is not just saying, don't, be, don't murder anybody. He's saying, don't be angry, sinfully. Don't speak evil of people. Don't lash out. Don't call people fools in a sinful way. Or you will be what? You'll be what? Subject to what? Subject to, subject to judgment. We know murderers are subject to judgment. But are people who get angry and lose their temper once in a while, are they really subject to judgment? Well, Jesus is the fulfiller and the interpreter of the Bible, is he not? I mean, he says all scripture, he came to fulfill the, the law and the prophets, Matthew 5, 17. So God, Jesus is telling us God looks not only at the outside, but also at the what? The inside. So should you be judged in court for anger? Really? Verse 22. And should you really be subject to hellfire? Can you go to hell? Should you go to hell for being sinfully angry one time and calling someone a fool once? Sinfully? Does that mean you deserve hell? Are you subject to hellfire for that? What does Jesus say? Apparently. Now, people generally say, have you heard this before? I'm a good person. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I, I don't think I'll go to hell because I've never murdered anyone. Have you ever heard that before? <laughs> I've never murdered anyone, so I'm not going to go to hell. I mean, I know I'm not perfect, but I've never murdered anyone, so I'm not going to go to hell. Jesus disagrees. Have you ever been angry with someone in your heart, sinfully, from selfishness and self-centeredness. You've murdered them in your heart. You're guilty and you're subject not just to judgment, but to hellfire. It's not, it's not good enough to just never murder for Jesus. None of us can stand on our own righteousness, so God promises to provide us with a righteousness. He promises to fill, to fill us if we come as those poor in spirit and those hungry and thirsty for righteousness. If you're not a Christian this morning, let me say thank you for coming. If you're not a Christian, thank you for coming this morning. You don't have to be here. God doesn't force you to be here at this church this Sunday, but um, thank you for being here. God has a message for you if you're not a Christian. Here's his message for you this morning. Everyone in this room deserves to go to hell, Christian and non-Christian. We all deserve to go to hell for our lives. Our sin, we have all been angry. We've all been sinfully angry. We've all sinfully said things to other people and called them a fool from a selfish, self-centered, idolatrous heart. And we have been unrighteous. And therefore, only Jesus can save us. So if you're not a Christian, 
you're going to hell. If you are a Christian, you deserve to go to hell too. The only way out is to trust in Jesus, his blood and his perfect righteousness, his death on the cross for your sins and his righteousness counted to you by faith alone. So again, if you're not a Christian, you can be forgiven of all your sins if you'll repent from your sins even this morning and turn to Jesus Christ for your salvation. All right, but let's move on. Look at verse 23. Jesus continues here. So, so not only should you not be sinfully angry and not speak sinfully about others and call them fools, Jesus goes on, so if you're offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, what should you do in verse 24? Leave your gift at the altar, in front of the altar, and then this next word is very important. What's the next word? First. First, go and be reconciled with your brother and sister. And, and what's the next word? And, and then, and then come and offer your gift. So what do we learn from this? If, you, if, you, if you've said something foolish, if you've called someone a fool, if you've offended somebody and sinned against them, and you remember, you're there at the altar, you're there to worship God, you have your sacrifice, priest is ready, he's about to bring down the knife, and you're there to worship God and keep your Old Testament sacrifice, and at that point, you remember that one of your family members, one of your neighbors, one of your covenant community members, your church members, has something against you. Stop it right there. Don't go anywhere. I mean, not don't go anywhere. Don't continue with what you're doing. Stop the sacrifice. Block the hand of the priest. Do not kill this animal yet. I need to go to my neighbor and be reconciled to him first. And then I'll come back. So just wait here for about a few hours. Priest, right? In other words, if you're going to be sensitive to worshiping God, you must be sensitive to your community. If you are not sensitive to your community, you cannot be sensitive in your worship of God. R.T. France says, the importance of right relationships demands decisive action. End quote. The positive counterpart to anger is right relationships with others. So you need to have right relationships with people. You need to settle your accounts, so to speak. And notice, it's immediate and urgent. He says, first do this, and then go and offer your sacrifice. So it's immediate, it's urgent, it's spiritual. If you're going to please God, you can't please God by doing sacrifices while you have broken relationships where you have sinned against them. That is hypocrisy. You hypocritically worship God this morning. If you're here, and you have broken relationships because of your sin, and you know it, and you have not reconciled with them, don't come yet. Go. Get on the phone. Leave right now in the middle of the message. Go. Go on the phone. Go outside. Step outside and call them and reconcile with them first. It's immediate. It's urgent. It's inconvenient. He says, do this first. Isn't it inconvenient? I mean, you paid for the animal. You brought the animal. You brought the priest out of his precincts to come here to make the sacrifice, and then you remember last minute. Isn't that great inconvenience to everyone around you? So what do we do in our, in our uh, convenient world today? We are in a world where, where people are put on hold for our convenience, right, on the phone. We don't have to answer the phone when we want. We have caller ID. We don't have to be inconvenienced by anybody. And God calls you to regular inconvenience. You cannot worship God conveniently. You can't just say, I'll do it later. You can't say that. You can't say that and not be a hypocrite. You can't. 
You can't reconcile on your time and worship God in a way that pleases him. You must reconcile first. You must reconcile right away. You must reconcile immediately. And if you don't, leave your sacrifice there. First go reconcile and then come and offer your gift. This is why we take communion regularly in this church. This is why we gather weekly. The weekly gathering of the church and the regular taking of communion in the church and examining your hearts before you take communion is a gift from God. Don't look at this command as a burden. It does feel like a burden when your heart is hard. But when your heart is soft, this is not a burden. This is a blessing. How sweet it is to have right relationships with all those around you. To have no outstanding broken relationships where it's your fault. To be a person where as far as it depends on you, you are at peace with everyone. That is a sweet, I mean, you could lay your head on your pillow at night with, with genuine peace and rest. But to keep these outstanding accounts of stupid comments we've made and rash things we've said and, bro- and having a, a line, a long litany of, of friendships broken by our foolishness and our anger, that's hard. It's hard to worship God with that, isn't it? It's hard to enjoy the glory and holiness and, and love of Jesus when you're not settling these relationships. It's a terrible way to live. And Jesus loves us in commanding us with this urgent, immediate command. Go to verse 25. Let's move on. Reach settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to court. Or your adversary will hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Jesus is telling us here, take care of your problems while they're small before they get bigger. This is not legal advice necessarily. I mean, this does have legal implications, but Jesus is not trying to give you formal legal advice here on how to handle your court situations when you're being sued. But it is by, just in principle, when you have problems with other people, take care of them while they're small. Problems get bigger. They, weigh, they have a way of mutating and morphing into bigger things, right? Take care of them while they're small. Don't follow, don't allow bad relationships to remain unresolved as much as it depends on you. Always open the door. Always give the olive branch of peace. You can't force someone to take it, but you can offer it every time and leave the door open for them. All right. What does repentance before God look like? If you're gonna repent and honor God in relationships with others, how do you do this? First, you need to repent towards who? Who's the most important person? God. Always repent to God as your primary importance. Then you repent towards the other person. So how do you do this? Let me just give you a brief, simple way of doing this. What does repentance towards God look like? I posted this on Facebook last night. C-A-R. Confess, affirm, and request. Call your sin what it is. God, please forgive me for calling somebody a blind fool. Forgive me for that. I was sinfully angry. I was self-centered. It wasn't about your glory and your word being trampled on. It was about me being personally offended, and that's why I lashed out at that person. That's why I said what I said. Please forgive me for sinful anger in my heart and for my lashing out of a word. That's calling sin what it is. Number two, affirm. God, thank you for Jesus who died for my sins and rose from the dead. I affirm that Christ has paid for my sins. That's part of repentance. If you keep confessing you're bad and you never trust Christ's cross, that's not repentance. That's whipping yourself in the back and trying to make yourself feel bad so that somehow as the more bad you feel, the more guilt-free you feel. 
That's not what God, that's not Christian repentance. Christian repentance is affirming the work of Christ in forgiving you. And then R is request. Request grace to change. Beg God. God, please don't leave me with this sinfully angry, short-tempered, lashing out from the mouth heart. Please change me, God. When you're begging God to change you and you've repented and you're trusting Christ, that's true repentance. Because you can't just change your heart on your own strength. But can you beg God? Can you plead with him? Can you cry out to God to change you? From, from the bottom of your heart with sincerity? That's repentance. That's repentance. So confess your sin. Call it what it is. Affirm the cross of Christ and his forgiveness. And then request on your knees and your face, down on your face before God, beg God to change you. Okay, now, after I do that, let's say I, I sinned against Ben. I've lashed out at him or I've said something against him. So I'm going to pray on my own. God, please forgive me. Then I'm going to go to Ben. This is Ben, by the way, in case you don't recognize who he is. This is Ben. Um, you go to Ben, um, and um, I'm going to confess my sin to Ben. Ben, brother, please forgive me for sinning against you. When I said that thing about you yesterday, I sinned against God and I sinned against you. Can you please, so that's, I confess, I call the sin what it is, then I ask him for forgiveness. Can you please forgive me for sinning against you? And then I will, and then, and then after I ask Ben to get his reply, then I'm going to tell, God, tell Ben how I'm asking God to change my life. I'm praying that God would change my heart so that I don't do that to you or to others. Can you pray for me? That's how you make right with somebody. You confess your sin. You don't wash it over. You don't make excuses for your sin. You just call it what it is. I sinned against you. Can you please forgive me? And can you pray for me that God would change my heart? That is what Jesus is telling you to do. Do that before you come and offer your gift or else you're worshiping hypocritically. All right, so that's the application. For the church family, what does this mean for us as a church? Let us as a church family be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Be a gossip stopper in this church. Be a slander stopper in this church. May this church have such a culture that gossip and slander can't survive. That when a, a word of gossip comes out, it just gets killed like, like, you know, from the immune system of a healthy church that nobody tolerates gossip in this church. Nobody tolerates slander in this church. So if you come to me and you want to gossip about another member, I will say, brother, have you talked to that person first? If you have not, don't tell me because you're going to sin against God. And if I listen to that and I don't confront you on it, I'm going to sin against God by receiving it. So if you want, I'll go with you to go to talk to the person so that neither of us sin against God. But if you're just going to complain to me about somebody else's soul, you're going to sin and you're going to cause me to sin. That's, that's poisonous to a church family. So Bethany Baptist Church, let us be peacemakers, not peacebreakers. Let's not cultivate the, the habits that break peace in a church. You know what breaks peace in a church? Sin breaks peace in a church. You know what brings peace to a church? Grace confronting and correcting and transforming people who are sinning. So let that be the culture of this church. May God do it. If you're a child or you're a parent or you're a spouse or you're a single person or you're a coworker or you're a student or you're a retiree, here's my question to all of you. What do you get angry about? Is it the glory of God? Is that what riles you up when Christ's glory is trampled on? Or is it when you're crossed? in your agenda? What gets you angry? What are you so angry about? 
What causes you that you have to say something to somebody complaining about somebody else? Is it the glory of God? Or is it the glory of you? Are you murdering your parents in your heart, children? Parents, are you murdering your children in your heart with your anger? Spouses, are you, have you, how many times have you murdered your spouse in your heart? Or singles, your friends, your coworkers, your classmates, your neighbors? Hunger and thirst for a righteous love for holiness. Hunger for a righteous anger with sensitivity. When I say with sensitivity, be sensitive to your sin, to your self-centeredness, to the fact that you need to reconcile with people. If you want to have surpassing righteousness, don't be content not to murder. Have a love for a righteous anger with sensitivity. Does that make sense? You guys get that? Okay, let's go to the second one and last one. Hunger and thirst for a righteous sexual morality. Hunger and thirst for a righteous sexual morality. Look at verse 27 with me, Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Verse 27, do not commit adultery. That's plain. That's in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 13. Do not commit adultery. What is adultery? Adultery is sexual intimacy with another person's spouse. And Jesus says, quoting the Old Testament, do not commit this sin of intimacy, physical intimacy with another person's spouse. That would be sinful. Deuteronomy 22, verses 22 to 24 says this. If a man is discovered having sexual relations with another man's wife, both, man, both the man who had sex with the woman and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. If there is a young woman who is a virgin engaged to a man and another man encounters her in the city and has sex with her, you must take the two of them out of this gate of that city and stone them to death. The young woman, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he has violated his neighbor's fiance. You must purge the evil from among you. That's Deuteronomy 22, 22 to 24. With a clear punishment stated here, it's capital punishment. The, the penalty is death. It's no surprise that the proverb says in Proverbs 6.32, the one who commits adultery lacks sense. Whoever does so destroys himself. Now, we don't have capital punishment for adultery in our new covenant community in the church. I'm not advocating for capital punishment here in the church. We do have something much worse than capital punishment. Do you know what that is? Excommunication. The fact that I heard that from you is encouraging to me. I'll just say that as a pastor. Thank you for saying that. Excommunication. Excommunication is us representing, being the heavenly representative here on earth, saying, declaring about a certain person who was a member of our church, we no longer affirm that you are a Christian. We're not saying we know that you're not. We, we withdraw our affirmation that you are a Christian. That is worse than excommunication. That is worse than capital punishment because that means if that's true, you're going where? To hell. That's worse than dying. Eternal death is worse, right? The second death is worse than the first death. And so the same thing happens in the church. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. No sexually moral people idolaters, adulterers, or anyone practicing homosexuality. Hebrews 13.4, marriage must be respected by all, and the marriage bed must be kept undefiled because God will judge immoral people and adulterers. So Jesus says, do not commit adultery. The Old Testament says, Moses wrote, Ten Commandments, do not commit adultery. That's what was said in the Old Covenant. It's repeated in the New Covenant. 
But Jesus calls us to a righteousness that surpasses avoiding sexual scandal. Let's look at verse 28. Look at verse 28. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already what? Has already committed what? Adultery in or with her in his heart. Jesus goes deeper than the physical act of sexual immorality. He says, don't look at a woman to lust for her. To purposefully lust for her. Looking at a woman lustfully. And this doesn't just mean that only men can commit this sin. Women can commit this sin too of looking at a, a man lustfully. And that not only heterosexuals can commit this sin, Right? If you have same-sex attractions, you can commit this sin as well. The point is, looking lustfully at someone who is not your spouse, as marriage defined in the Bible, as one man and one woman, if you're looking at anyone who is not your spouse, lustfully, you are committing adultery with that person in your heart. And Jesus says to stop it, to not do it, that that is the standard of righteousness. This gets at the heart of the commands of the Ten Commandments because the Tenth Commandment is do not covet your neighbor's house, do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female slave or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to him. It's not just coveting for um, intimacy, it's coveting in any sense, but includes not coveting your neighbor's wife. It's not just the act, it's the heart. It's It's not just the deed, it's the desire. It's the craving. It's the intentionality. It's the daydream. It's, it's, the, it's the wanting. So one New Testament scholar says, don't suppose that Jesus means you must never feel the impulse of lust when you look at someone attractive. So the question I ask, and I asked this in college, my first year in college, I asked my professor, okay, I'm 19 years old, and I'm reading texts like this, and I'm thinking, how do I, li- how do I live this out as a 19-year-old in college? Okay, so I asked my professor, where, where's the line, if, if, if not all temptation is sin, at what line do you cross from temptation to sin, right? So, so, so where is the line of being tempted to lust and actually sinfully lusting? So one New Testament scholar writes, don't suppose that Jesus means you must never feel the impulse of lust when you look at someone attractive. That would be impossible. And all God's people say, amen, okay, that's not a sin by itself, okay, good. Thank you. That's a relief. So that would be impossible and is not in any case what the words mean. What he commands us is to uh, to avoid is the gaze and the lustful imagination that follow the initial impulse. Here's the way my professor said it. My professor said, the thought comes in your mind, you say no. The thought comes in your mind, you say no. The thought comes in your mind, you say no. The moment you don't say no immediately, at that split second, you don't say no immediately, you've sinned. Or like Martin Luther says, you, um, you, you, you can't keep a bird from flying on your head, but you can keep it from building a nest. <laughs> you get the idea? Like if a bird flew, like you, you can't really control every time a bird would come down, but you can keep a bird from building a nest on your head, right? Um, so same thought here. Um, the initial impulse, it can be there. It can be here, but you got to push it out right away every time. Because he says, if you look at the person in your heart, the eye is the steering wheel to the heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart, for from it flow the springs of life. And the gateway to the heart, 
especially for men, but even for women, are the eyes and the imagination. So, Job 31, 31. This is where the, some of you guys know the ministry covenant eyes. It comes from Job 31, 31, where he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look on a young woman. Job's an older man, and he makes a covenant with his eyes not to look at a younger woman. Let me give you some stats on pornography, because pornography is, um, you know, that its business is to get people to look lustfully at things, all right? All of, its, all of its work is for that purpose, to put images in front of people. So nearly 100% of the performers, these are some stats, 100% of the actors and those who, who, who engage in it, who produce it, nearly 100% of the performers have or, had, or have had an STD. 90% of the performers are involved in some type of drug abuse. Heath Lambert says, quotes a, a performer regarding this drug abuse. He says, guys are punching you in the, there's a woman, he, he's, oh, this woman said this, guys are punching you in the face. Your body is damaged and torn. You're viewed as an object, not as a person with a spirit. People do drugs in porn because they can't deal with the way they are treated any other way. 90%. 12, the age of 12, 12 is now the average age for the first exposure of boys to hardcore pornography. My son is 12. Just to give you an idea here. We talked about this yesterday, me and him. 56% of divorce cases cite one of the partners as having some level of enslavement to pornography. There is a problem of pornography existing in churches. In churches, 80% of the men struggle with pornography. In churches. The other 10% don't merely struggle, they are dominated by it completely every day as part of their daily life. So that's 90%. And then 10% are not struggling or giving into pornography in their lives. I read another stat that said 50% of pastors struggle with pornography. And over 20% of Christian women struggle with it as well. It's not just a male problem. It's not just a male temptation. Quote, this is Heath Lambert, and here's the dirty little secret. Church leaders are struggling with this as well. Keith Lambert writes, with all my heart, I do not want to have a conversation about this, and then everybody goes back to normal. And that's true of the sermon as well. We don't want to just talk about this sin and everyone goes back to normal in the way this church lives their lives. I was telling one of the members last night, I don't think 9 out of 10 is the stat at our church, by God's grace. Maybe it's something like 5 out of 10 or 6 out of 10, I don't know. Um, Which is still a big, crazy number, right? But I mean, to, to not be 9 out of 10... If a church starts talking about these things and asking questions, and, um, and I ask this question, I've started asking this question in our membership interviews. So some of you are like, I got in before PG asked. Um, maybe, but I still might ask you. But um, when I do membership interviews now, that's one of the normal questions I ask. Um, it's just necessary as a pastor for me to know that as you come into this church, I need to pastor you. Remember the story of David and Bathsheba? David's on the rooftop And Bathsheba is bathing on the roof of her house, and David sees her, and then he desires her, and then he sends for her. There's lustful looking that can often lead to lustful action, but lustful looking in and of itself is a sinful action already. Side note to sisters in our church, don't dress immodestly, and don't be offended to be informed or challenged when dressing a certain way. And just so you know, if you're a sister of the church, I will address you. I, if I have to, I will. I mean, and it's not out of 
anger or it's out of love. It's a, it's a one brother to a sister. I, I have to do that not only for my sake, but for the church's sake, for the women and the men in our church. John Stott writes, it is one thing to make yourself attractive. It is another to make yourself deliberately seductive. You girls know the difference. So do we men. Scott McKnight writes, there is no way for humans to avoid sexual temptation. Jesus teaches control of desire, not suppression of sexuality. So if you're not a Christian, let me again thank you for being here on this morning. As you share this Sunday morning with us, we're glad you're here. We want you to know that there is hope for sinners. Some people look at Christians as a bunch of hypocrites. I tend to think of the Christians in a church not as a bunch of hypocrites, but a bunch of self-realizing hypocrites. In other words, we're aware that we sin. We're, we're, we're not completely self-aware, but we are more aware. That's why we're here. We're here because we know we're sinners. And we're here because we know we stand condemned on our own. And we're here because we need God's grace. And so if you're not a Christian, you're saying, well, where can I go? You can come to church. Because this is a group of sinners saved by God's grace, not by our righteousness. Not by our holiness. Not by our self-control. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says, Don't you know the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Don't be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. No thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. Now here's the hope for you non-Christians and for you Christians. And some of you used to be like this. But you were, this is sweet words, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you're not a Christian, I have hope for you this morning. Jesus washes sinners. He cleanses sinners. He forgives sinners. He changes sinners. He will change you if you call on him to save you. So call on him this morning to save you. If you have more questions, I'll be at the back door at the end of this gathering, and you're welcome to ask me or any Christian who's a member of this church, and they'll try to help you understand what it means to have that forgiveness. Look at verses 29 and 30 now. Last two verses of the passage. If your right eye causes you to sin, so here's the lust problem. It's in your heart. It's not just actions, not just sleeping with a person. It could even be in your desires. If your right eye causes you to sin, what should you do? Gouge it out and what? Throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, whatever it takes to cut off the sin and the lust triggers in your life that lead you to temptation, cut them off or you will go to hell. You'll go to hell. The command is do whatever it takes to kill this sin before this sin kills you eternally. Whatever causes you to sin refers to the things that get you off the path of God's will and off the path of God's saving work in your life. One preacher wrote that, said this, quote, A few Christians whose zeal greatly exceeded their wisdom have taken Jesus' words here and mutilated themselves. Perhaps the best-known example is a third-century scholar, Origen of Alexandria. He went to extremes of asceticism, renouncing his possessions, food and sleep, and in an over-literal interpretation of this passage, out of Matthew 19.12, he actually made himself a eunuch, castrated himself. Not long after that, in AD 325, the Council of Nicaea was right to forbid this bar barbarous practice in the church. So the Council of Nicaea not only clarified the Trinity, thank the Lord for that, they also said, stop castrating yourselves. Because that's not what Jesus means here. What does he mean here then? If he's not literally saying cut your hand off, what does he mean? 
He's not advocating a literal, literal physical maiming, but a ruthless, quote, ruthless moral self-denial. Not mutilation, but mortification is the path of holiness. And mortification or taking up your cross and following Jesus means you reject sinful practices and the paths that lead to them. Do you remember Joseph, the story of Joseph? He was a slave in Egypt and his master's wife was seducing him and begging him to sleep with her over and over again. And he would, he would, he would try to avoid her in all kinds of ways he could. This is Genesis 39 if you want to read it for homework. And he says, no, no, no. And then when she finally gets him to a place which was eerily and coincidentally um, absent of everyone except them two, I wonder who arranged that, right? He grabs she grabs him and grabs his tie, so to speak, and he gets away from her and she ends up able to rip the tie off and holds it and then starts screaming, rape! <laughs> and Joseph gets thrown into jail for that. But Joseph says something before when he's pushing himself away from her. He says, How? he's like, your master, my master has given me everything in this house. There's nothing he withholds from me except you because you're his wife. How can I do this great evil and sin against God? It's about God. It's about heaven. It's about really trusting God. Did Joseph do whatever it took to obey God? He even went to jail for it. Joseph, do you think Joseph regrets his decision today? Absolutely not, and neither will you. The motivation here is the threat of hell. Jesus literally wants to scare the hell out of you. Or maybe the other way around, he wants to scare you out of hell. While fearing hell is never enough to be saved, it might be a start for some to wake you up. It can get your attention to the no-brainer of the universe that you can have Jesus for free if you give up the trash that you're in love with. That's a no-brainer, right? Give up your trash and have Jesus in heaven. That's not a difficult deal to take. But for, for many it is. Hebrews 12, 14 says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Does this mean you can lose your salvation? Is that what Jesus is saying here? If you don't fight lust, you'll lose your salvation? No. You can never lose your salvation, but you can think you had it and never really had it. Election is unconditional, and justification by faith alone, apart from works, is by faith alone. But sanctification and glorification are conditional. It requires your acting in it, part of the salvation project. So let me give you very practically here and quickly... Five strategies to killing lust in your life. All right? Here are five strategies for killing lust in your life. If you're going to cut your hand off or gouge out your eye, I'm not telling you to literally do that, but I'm telling you to take these five strategies with you. All right? Here they are. Number one. I'll just tell you the five and then I'll go through them. Repent, shift, share, indulge, and grow. Repent, shift, share, indulge, and grow. What do I mean? Repent. What does it mean to repent? I told you earlier. Confess your sins to God, call it evil, affirm God's forgiveness of you in Christ, and beg God to change your heart. That's repentance, right? Repent. It's number one. Always step number one, repent. Confess it, affirm the cross, and beg God to change you. That's step one, or that's one strategy. Strategy number two, or step number two, shift. Make a drastic shift. Use radical measures. Do whatever it takes to kill lust in your life. Let me put it this way. It's better to live without a smartphone than to have a smartphone and go to hell. It's better to live without internet than to have internet and go to hell. It's better to be single and sexually pure than have a girlfriend and boyfriend or fiance or a friend with, a friend with benefits and to be sexually involved with them. It's better to have none of that 
and go to heaven than to have all of that and go to hell. It's better for you to have Christian friends who know your sin and struggle and hold you accountable rather than hide it from everyone where everyone thinks well of you and thinks you're not struggling with it and then you end up going to hell. It's better for you to live without a TV than to have a TV that causes you to lust and go to hell. It's better for you to move and lose a job and move from your current residence or unfriend a friend from Facebook or get rid of Facebook altogether or other social media than to have all of those things and go to hell. Do whatever it takes. If you don't continually, genuinely repent and fight sin and make progress, you will go to hell. That's what Jesus says. Because it will show that you don't really trust Jesus. You don't really believe in his death and resurrection. You don't really want his Holy Spirit to change you. So we stand with John Calvin when it comes to a moral compass. He says this, Jesus means that however difficult, arduous, troublesome, or painful God's rule may be, we must make no excuse for that as the righteousness of God should be worth more to us than all other things which are chiefly dear and precious. Whatever you love, Jesus is worth more. And you should be willing and ready and able to give up absolutely everything to have Jesus. It's a no-brainer. So that's the second one, is shift. Make a drastic shift. Second, thirdly, so repent, shift, share. Get accountability. Confess your sins to your pastors. Hopefully we have more pastors. Your deacons, city group leaders, trusted fellow church members. Ask them to pray for you and walk with you through this fight against lust and sin. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Flee youthful lusts or youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. In other words, pursue this not by yourself but with other people. Scott McKnight wrote, Bonhoeffer taught in the context of his underground seminary the importance of confession and explained that in confession, one is approaching not just a fellow Christian. I love this. For those of you who confess, you guys could say amen to this. When you're approaching a brother for confession, you're not just approaching a fellow Christian, but you're approaching the grace of God mediated through the other Christian. As he put it, when I go to another believer to confess, I am going to God. Have you experienced that, brothers and sisters who've confessed? I've experienced that. I'm going to God when I'm coming to my brother or sister to confess sins. So brothers and sisters, share life and share Jesus. When we talk about membership in this church, you know how we define membership? That you exercise responsibility for each other's discipleship, both individually and collectively. That's what it means to be a member of a church, that you are your brother's keeper, whether you know them well or not. And so don't be content to be a church member who sits here on Sundays and leaves and never builds deep friendships where you can actually confess embarrassing sins. If you can't do that, you are leaving a wealth of riches on the table when God has given you a church that wants to do that. So if you're a member of this church, I encourage you, I implore you, I beg you to be more vulnerable and share with each other for your own sake. That's third which is share. Number four, indulge. What? Indulge? I thought we were trying to restrain. Indulge. What do do we indulge in? Use your marriage or singleness. If you're married, spouses, go to my Song of Songs sermon, right? Be intoxicated with each other. Be drunk in love with your spouse. Now, if you're not married, can you indulge too? Yes. Singles, be intoxicated with 
All that Christ has freed you up to do because you're single. This is 1 Corinthians 7. If you're not married, you have an undistracted devotion to Christ. You have an opportunity to fill your life. You don't have the worries of marriage and keeping up a household if you're single. You are free to indulge and fill your life with all kinds of initiatives for loving neighbors and spreading the gospel and doing good works and being a peacemaker and being salt and light in the world. So indulge in your singleness in the opportunity in front of you. Fill your life up to the brim, overflowing with initiatives for good in this world. Indulge. Indulge. And if you're married, you still need to indulge in good works as well. Indulge. Number five, not only indulge, fifthly and lastly in terms of the strategy is grow. Grow in your a dynamic relationship with Jesus that is beyond the battle with lust. If you're gonna fight lust, you need to fight sin in all the areas of your life, including this battle. You need to fight to enjoy God deeply in every area of your life. You need to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. You can read John 15, four through eight later, but if you abide in Christ and his word abides in you, you bear fruit. That's for all of your life. You can't just focus on one area of your life and neglect sin in other areas of your life and grow. You have to really take all sin seriously or no sin. If you don't take all sin seriously, then you're not gonna grow. So not, don't just focus on the sin. We talked about two today, and we'll talk about more next week. But we sing songs like, take my life and form it. Take my mind, transform it. Take my will, conform it to yours, to yours, O Lord. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Why? For the Father up above is looking down in love, so be careful, little eyes, what you see. Men, share your struggle with other men in this church and even with your spouse. Women, share your struggle with your husband and other women. There are many marriages. When I don't do premarital counseling, and I do get members who join our church without me doing premarital counseling, um, there are many premarital counselors that don't address this issue in premarital counseling. And often, oftentimes as a pastor in this church, I have to pick up the pieces. So I'm telling you now, deal with this in your marriage. Talk about it. If you need help, and you do, every marriage needs help. Every marriage needs help. Um, ask for help. I'm here to help. Members of this church are here to help. But, but this is a topic that needs to be a topic of conversation in the marriage. All right, but share with others. Church member, help each other. Be honest with where you can be helpful. And brothers and sisters, be honest with where you can't be helpful. If this is a temptation to you, you got to be careful how you confess as well, right? You could give too many details. You could tempt the person you're confessing to. That's why Galatians 6.1 says, you who are spiritual, restore people. If you're not ready to hear that type of confession, you need to be honest and say, I can't hear that right now. I, I, I love you and I want to pray for you, but can you go talk to this person instead? Okay? If you can't handle it, be honest. Um, this, this topic obviously needs to be a, a conversation in every church. Children, listen up, children. Turn your eyes and your thoughts away from immodesty. And this is what we teach our kids. Remember, kids, naked is private. Naked is private. Yours and others. So respect the privacy of everyone, even if they don't want their privacy respected themselves because they'll put themselves on a picture on a billboard. Even if they want to expose themselves, you remember it's private, and you respect them as people made in God's image. Parents, teach your kids to be sensitive not just to pornography but immodesty and to hold romantic physical expressions within the context of marriage. So when my, when my kids are watching a movie and there's a, a kissing scene, they turn away, unless it's a married couple. 
If it's a married couple, we're saying, oh, it's okay, you can see it. I mean, obviously, if it's just like a, a regular kiss, not some, you know, sexually charged one. But like, if it's a normal kiss in mar- and it's a married couple, on this, they're married in the story, we say, oh, you can look at that. Because when, it, and we tell our kids, when is it okay to kiss? When you're married. That's right. That's right, kids. When you're married. And all of us adults kind of shrink back in a little bit of shame. Parents, teach your kids to be sensitive to modesty and teach them that romantic physical expressions are beautiful in the context of marriage and not anywhere else. Spouses, check in with each other. Singles, like I said, fill your lives with undivided and undistracted devotion to Christ and his kingdom. Workers, students, retirees, be careful with your eyes and your thoughts at work, at school, in the neighborhood, and online. You know, Alistair Begg said, um, one of his prayer requests as a pastor that he heard from an older pastor is, he said, how can I pray for you? And he says, pray that I don't become a dirty old man. What does he mean by that? that? That older men can still be dirty old men in their lust if they don't fight. And that's not just true for men, that's also for women. If you're discouraged and you're weak and you're stumbling, I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, Jesus will fill you with his righteousness. Call on him in desperation today. And if you're stubbornly sticking to your sin, turn now, confess. If you're doing well, some of you are doing well in this area, take heed lest you fall. Hunger and thirst for righteousness and holiness so that you will be filled and confidently face the final judgment. So I close by saying, brothers and sisters, you're not justified by your personal righteousness. But if you are justified, God fills you with his righteousness and he calls you to grow in it. So the good news is, let me read to you the good news. We're gonna take the communion tonight, but you know Jeremiah 31, 31 and 34, Jesus says this cup is the what? This cup is the what? Say it. New covenant in my blood. The cup is the new covenant. What does that mean that the cup is the new covenant when Jesus dies? Here's what it means. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 says this. Look, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. And then verse 33 says this. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my teaching within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will each one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. God will write his law in your heart. He will fill you with his righteousness and he will cause you to obey his will. Isn't that good news? If you're discouraged by fighting with sin, brothers and sisters, it's not up to you ultimately. It's up to Jesus. He will fill you with his new covenant righteousness. So hunger and thirst for righteous anger with sensitivity and hunger and thirst for righteous sexual immorality. As the song goes, now Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose and let my song forever be my only boast is you. Here's my final call to action for you guys. Cry out to God to fill and form in you an increasingly righteous love for holiness. That's a simple application, right? Can you all do that? Can you at least commit to crying out to God to give you a love for holiness? Ask God to give that to you through Christ in the name of Jesus. If you don't do that, if you can't even do that, if you can't even call out to God, if you fail to do that, you will continue with lower external only standards of the Bible. You'll continue to doubt whether you're truly saved and you'll continue with a joyless, duty-driven Christianity that feels more like a burden than a blessing. But if you cry out to God, you will be more and more sensitive to the true standard of holiness. 
You will grow in confidence that Jesus fulfilled his righteousness for you because he is fulfilling his righteousness in you as he works in you. And best of all, if you call out to God for holiness and a love for holiness, you will enjoy the goodness of God and you will feel the blessing and privilege of holiness as he takes you through the painful process of growth. So brothers and sisters, taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him? How happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk according to his instruction? And how happy is everyone who fears the Lord and who walks in all his ways, not just on the outside, but on the inside? Let's pray. Father, take our lives, our hearts, our wills, and conform them to yours. We call out to you and we cry out to you for help. Change us and transform us through Christ alone. And help us to continually cry out to you for help in deep and true repentance. In Jesus' name, amen.